Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. Good morning. It is Wednesday. Another Doc of the Rock. Vaccines, double masks, long-term treatment plans. Those are just a couple of the topics we have lined up this morning for the program. But as always, if you have a question on your mind about something COVID-related you'd like the docs to talk about, you're most welcome to call 486-3181 and give us a question or shoot us an email. Lowdown at kmxt.org and we'll try and get your question answered before the end of the show. Today, right now, we have on the uh, video conference Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Ambulatory Care Clinic, and we're expecting Dr. Smith from Providence to pop in here when he gets done with his staff meeting. So, Dr. Theobald, nice to see your face again. Oh, thanks. It's good to be back in Kodiak. You are back from an extended vacation, well-deserved vacation, and you went out of uh, out of country. Can you let us yeah. know a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really interesting um, traveling out of country. We were um, we just kind of briefly talked about it before going on the air, but basically, in order to travel out of the country to check in for your flight at the ticket counter, you have to show proof of a negative COVID test within 72 hours of your travel. So, and you can't even check them on the plane without that proof. And then you have to fill out a declaration form, you know, saying that you're you don't have COVID or you don't have any symptoms, and you have to show those upon arrival before you kind of leave the terminal when you're exiting in, you know, in Honduras. And I think this is true in a lot of countries. You have to actually show proof of that negative test as well as the, the confirmation form. So they make it pretty much like you're not, if you don't, if you haven't done that, you're not going to travel, which is a little bit different than the United States. To get back in the U.S., they were very strict like that. But, um, you know, once we were, you know, I was traveling within the United States, I didn't have to show that proof. I just had to fill out declaration forms to go to the different states. So, like, to come back to Alaska. But to, to leave, I mean, where were where were you asked for the documentation? At the local airport, the Anchorage airport? Um, yeah, so, no, uh, checking in. We actually flew to North Carolina first because my husband was doing his uh, additional flight training down there for Island Air. And so, since he was already on the East Coast, we decided to just go down to Honduras to go diving on the Caribbean coast and um, to check in for our international flight at the very, you know, in North Carolina, we went through Florida and then to Honduras, you have to show a negative COVID test before they give you your tickets or put your bag, you know, on the flight. So that's a country by country determination then. I mean, if you were going to a country that didn't require that, they wouldn't require it at the terminal. Is that right? Yep, exactly. If you're traveling, yep. If you're traveling outside, make sure you check the embassy for that country what their requirements are because they also had you we us fill out this declaration form um that we had to print and give as well at the at the ticket counter and we didn't realize that <laughs> until we were almost at the airport so yeah make sure you really look at whatever wherever you're thinking of traveling um what those requirements are and follow them because they won't they're not there's no way to kind of slip through the cracks 
Well, you've been through a number of airports then. Is, are, are they all fairly similar? Uh, do you see the same behavior throughout the country and other parts of the world? Yeah, so in every single airport they were announcing, we have a federal mask mandate. Everybody must wear your mask if you refuse to wear it. Um, basically, they would you know, decline you from being in the airport and call security. Um, so that was really, I think, encouraging and positive because you really are sharing. There's a lot of people sharing their airspace at that point, and no one can be protected if you know certain people decide they don't want to wear a mask. Um, on the planes, it was required to wear a mask. Most service, most flights, they weren't serving um, beverages or food unless it was a longer flight, and then they asked you to you know take a sip and then put your mask back on. Um, in Honduras, it was really interesting. A lot of, most of the people on the plane were double masking and wearing, you know, the plastic face shields and really taking it seriously. Honduras has a pretty high rate of infections right now. Their hospitals are pretty overrun, at least on the mainland. Where we were on the island, there was no cases at all. In fact, I got to talk to a doctor. It was really interesting there. Um, you know, the treatment protocols, they're actually using ivermectin and a lot of the other kind of unsure, unclear medication regimens. They're just using them there because they don't have ICU resources the way we have in the U.S. So they're trying to do as much to prevent it. But yeah, no, people there are really taking it seriously. And it's, I mean, the whole country's masking kids mask. It's not, it's just what you do to travel there. Uh, well, the CDC is now proposing mandating uh, requirements on net, on domestic airline, and they're getting a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from labor unions, from uh, the airlines in particular, uh, that they don't want to have to deal with that. Where you, uh, they're basically saying, before you get on the plane, you have to show a negative ty- negative mm-hmm. test before you get on. Now, why yeah. would why would that be a bad idea? Honestly, I think it's a great idea, especially now knowing that there's variants out there, and they're getting into you know, different states, and they're more resistant, potentially, um, to, well, at least the a couple of the vaccines we know, like South Africa was about to get their supply of AstraZeneca vaccine. And they just, you know, after doing a study, I think there's only 2000 people in the study, but they realized that that vaccine is not effective um, for COVID. So I think if we, I think having that negative test is going to help make sure that we don't go back into a huge surge again. We're just coming off of a, our biggest surge yet, and it, we're still, we don't have herd immunity. Um, there's still a really high chance that we can have an even bigger surge next time. If we're not careful, honestly, I think a negative test is really important. I think the mask mandate is really important. Um, that's just going to make sure we stay safe in this la- you know, these last few months before we can get more and more people vaccinated. Huh. The we we in Kodiak don't have to w- worry about the these new problems that are caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine because it's not in our community, right? Correct. Yes. Um, and as I understood it, though, that the vaccine was shown not to be affected in regards to the variants. It, mm-hmm. It's not that it wasn't effective in regards to just a different strain of COVID, right? That is correct. Um, I think it showed 66 to 85% effectiveness. Let me just, yeah, I, I was just reading, but exactly for mild to moderate um, COVID infections, it didn't seem to have, or of with the South African variant, it did not show much protection. 
Well, isn't that sort of a problem? Because isn't that the one that was supposed to be the salvation for the poorer countries in the world? That because of the refrigeration requirements and um, the ease of transportation and the cost of it, that that was going to be the one that was going to go out to most of the folks in the world? Yes. And AstraZeneca right now is looking at creating a vaccine specifically targeted for that strain, but that won't be out until the fall is what they're projected. The the um, vaccine is kind of more of a traditional vaccine platform where they use an inactive common cold virus to basically act as the um, the what's it called the way that you actually administer it into people's cells um and so and it has a little bit of uh, like i think it was dr jones last week was saying chopped up uh covid virus in it so now they're going to find you know specific parts of the new variant and they're going to put those proteins into this virus or sorry into the the capsule or whatever and that's how they're going to administer it to people but it takes a lot long because of how it's made it's actually grown in cells in the lab it takes a lot longer to produce that vaccine than it does to replicate uh, messenger rna strands so it is going to take a lot longer and then and johnson and johnson i think is probably going to have very similar effectiveness against the um new variants because it is particular proteins that they're targeting. And if those proteins don't match the new variant very well, it's not going to, your immune system's not going to recognize it and it's not going to be as effective. But they're still recommending that you go ahead, that you go ahead and get that vaccine if it's available to you. Yes. Still get the vaccine if it's available to you. They only looked at whether it pre uh, prevents mild to moderate COVID infections and not severe. So there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of scientists saying like it can still protect you from severe COVID infections. And that's really what the biggest concern is. So still get the vaccine if you can. But South Africa just halted all of the AstraZeneca vaccine being administered in their country. So it, I mean, it is having a pretty big impact well, that's horrible because then what what's their alternative if they don't have access to the other vaccines that are available? Isn't it better just to give something than nothing? Or do exactly. You, do you then, you know, raise the level of distrust of people in a vaccine that doesn't work? Yeah, that is exactly the conversation that they're having right now. What, you know, what should they, what is right for people? What should they be doing um, right now? And I think... I'm not sure which way they'll proceed. They might decide to go ahead and administer the AstraZeneca. But I mean, as a recipient, it is a little bit harder to be convinced to take a vaccine that might not protect you very much. So I, yeah, I think it's worth weighing all those, that information. Well, if this, yep. if some of these variants keep mutating, you know, the ones that, that are out there now and the vaccines that we have are, effective only in sort of knocking them down a little bit. I mean, preventing death, but, mm -hmm. um, aren't we sort of, uh, aren't we increasing the time it will take actually to reach herd immunity? Because if these things, if you're, if you're building a population up that's already been infected or been vaccinated, but the virus keeps mutating how do we ever get to herd immunity? Exactly. That's kind of the, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it is going to be more difficult to reach herd immunity. The alternative, the other part of it though, is that if you do give a vaccine and a 
virus is resistant, you also run the risk of creating more and more mutant viruses. So, you know, that can not only resist that vaccine, but who knows what other mutations they're going to develop the more they um, the more they're allowed to replicate in, in different people. So I, I don't know, you know, what, how the whole conversation is going to play out and in which way they're going to go with it, but you can kind of see the risks and the benefits of trying to get people vaccinated in spite of an, a partially effective vaccine versus holding off completely until, um, a better vaccine can be administered. Well, the, it, with what's happening right now, that theory that you know we ought to just let everybody get back, get get infected, um, doesn't appear to be a really good one right now because mm-hmm. it, it appears like more and more people are starting to get reinfected, even if they've had the infection the first time, because now it's. Uh, with the variants, they're able to get infected with worse symptoms than the first time they got infected. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you first of all, just let everyone get infected is the way that we're going to have the highest mortality and morbidity from the disease. And then second of all, exactly, you're, you run the risk. I mean, the more the virus is allowed to replicate, infect and replicate, the more chance for mutations to develop that might be better or worse strains. And then, yeah, the more chance you have resistance to the vaccines that are available. And this is why we still need to stay the course and keep on with physically distancing, you know, washing our hands, wearing the mask, double mask if if you can, because we like right now we are flattening the curve. However, as Dr. Olsterholm said on his last podcast, there's only maybe 10 percent immunity across the United States or, or, you know, either protection from the vaccine or have had the um, virus before. So you have some protective immunity from that. That means most of us are still Tinder that can be kind of caught on a fire in a new surge and it could be a variant. So we really, really, we still have to play the preventive game to prevent more mutant strains from developing. Well, Dr. Fauci said something interesting this week that he said the that protection from the vaccine is better than protection that you get from catching the disease. Which um, to me means that the vaccine would allow you to cover a bigger spect- spectrum of possible variants of the of the virus than it would um, just that strain that you get, right? I mean, if you get one strain of COVID and that only protects you from three other common ones, but then um, number four, the deadly, the British one or the South African one comes, you're not protected whatsoever. But if you had a vaccine, you would not only be protected from the regular strains of it, but you may have some protection that's not going to cause you to die against these new ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the science is behind why the vaccine will potentially give you stronger protection than the infection. I do know that getting the infection, we see a lot more morbidity, mortality, you know, than we do from the vaccine. And so just from that standpoint alone, I think avoid getting the infection and try to get the vaccine is, you know, hands down what we recommend from a public health standpoint. 
I have a question here that uh, was seeking some clarification in regards to the South African strain. That um, we do we have um, do we have research that indicates that the Pfizer and the Moderna have some degree of um, effectiveness against the South African variant or all of the vaccines not effective against that thing? Yeah. So as far as what I've read, um, the information that we have so far does seem to show that both the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines are still effective against the South African and, and the UK strains. And I think because this is, I'm not 100% sure about this, but because the um, AstraZeneca vaccine basically chopped up a piece of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and, you know, administered it um, in the capsule differently, it's that particular protein that's being introduced into the cell that is, that the immune system doesn't see this, you know, they're not recognizing that particular protein when they see this variant. They're, the variant has enough differences from that protein that your immune system doesn't, hasn't built antibodies specifically to that. If Does that make sense? It's a little bit kind of yeah. tricky to understand. There, yes, the, all the mRNA vaccines, which are the two that we have available to us here, don't seem to be already suspect as to not being able to fight the variant. Exactly. The mRNA um, teaches your cells, the, the cytoplasm in your cells, to code the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it's so far that protein, that spike protein that your body makes and then recognizes and attacks is still, you know, what they recognize when it's any of these variants. And so your immune system is still attacking, you know, if you get exposed to any of the variants and you've had the vaccine, so far what we've seen is that your immune system is ready to go even when they see the variant and they shut it down. And the value of the uh, the mRNA va vaccine is that it's a lot quicker process for mm -hmm. them to be able to develop a booster for it to fight some of the new variants as they start exactly. to develop. So if you already have this type of shot, you may, unfortunately, you know, we may be in a vaccine world for a few years, but mm -hmm. it sounds like, you know, they'll be able to change that more quickly. Yep. Exactly. They just have to recreate the RNA sequence of whatever protein that, that you know, that new variant is basically making proteins that look different. So then scientists can encode the RNA, the messenger RNA strain for that particular protein and then administer that. And then your immune system will make a very specific antibody to that particular protein. What a world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's um, pretty amazing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the vaccine clinics that we're having in town here now. Um, another hugely successful couple of them over the weekend here where it seemed yes. like uh, a lot of our population got but things seem to have changed a lot since last week when we spoke to the other doctors um, we are still in tier one are we not we are in phase um, 1a or sorry phase 1b 
tier one. Yes, exactly. We've completed all of the phase 1A, three tiers, and now we're in phase um, 1B, tier one, which is 65 and older, officially per the state of Alaska. Okay, and, but is there is there infighting still? There still seems to be some um, desire on the part of the community to get the state to release communities to be able to take control of this themselves. It, yeah, I so that's those are excellent questions. I haven't been involved, you know, because I've been away. Um, but I think that from what I've heard, Kodiak is close to completing vaccinations for ages 65 and older. Um, they've given, you know, lots of the community time and different chances. And, and a lot of, I think all the clinics are offering, you know, to do home visits to vaccinate people that can't make it in to the clinic and then really trying to go through their lists and call everybody that's 65 and older um, and offer them the vaccine. And then I, from, I wasn't here, just a little disclaimer, I wasn't here, but from what I've heard is that when we, you know, we had our clinic specifically had people that were scheduled that didn't show up to receive the vaccine. And so then we were left with extra doses that needed to be used. And I think that's when, you know, we, it was either waste the dose or, um, give it to somebody in the next tier. And I think that's when we started calling people that are technically not open up, you know, not in the current tier receiving the vaccine, but will be in the next tier. So ages 50 and older that are uh, public service jobs. So school teachers, um, people that work in grocery stores. And that's from my understanding. I wasn't here firsthand, but that's what was explained to me regarding some of the um, I guess confusion that where people were getting called that weren't in, that didn't meet criteria for right. tier one. But it, from from what the doctor said last week, you know, we were under this deadline to try and expend all of the vaccine we had so that we'd have a better argument for getting a bitter, bigger allocation for the February allocation. So mm -hmm. I can understand the desire to want to try and spend it all out, but then you you run into that. In the state problem of are we are we going beyond the tier we're supposed to go into yeah exactly and i think everyone wants to you know follow the tier the other thing is i'm not sure if this is still part of the consideration but when i was before i went traveling um the state had mentioned in other states were kind of getting in trouble if they use the vaccine out of the tier out of the phase and tier that we were in they would not be able to receive more vaccine. So they really, you know, they wanted to have some kind of accountability that clinics were really following their recommendations. And, and I mean, I think every single provider is on the same page. We, who, who is the most impacted from the virus? It's at age 65 and older where you see the most morbidity and mortality. So the whole point of the vaccine is to really prevent those, that severe disease. And you know, decrease the more want to follow was we didn't have. Sorry, my screen went blank. It did, but it just it just popped back up again. <laughs> It was the joy of the internet, but yes. and we in this community are are kind of in a different situation too because we have 
four different populations that are they have different rules for everybody because I understand at the base uh, anyone regardless of age uh, that was wanted to get a vaccine was eligible to get one over the weekend then you have your veteran population at Canada and you have the native population as well mm-hmm. so um, the folks that aren't in the special populations are uh, dealing mostly with you folks in the Kodiak Community Health Center uh, yeah. for a general distribution of the probably the bigger state pot. And um, so our community would be in the same commu- same distribution scheme as Anchorage and Bethel and everywhere else in the state. So everybody else in the state theoretically should be in 1B right now. Yeah, I know. So Bethel and the rural villages actually have different rules. Right. Um, they were they were allowed to have the vaccine a lot earlier just because they are so rural and dependent on flights and all that. Um, but yeah, and and Kodiak is partly in with the villages. You know, we're partly kind of in that group with the Native Association, but also um, we are rural. But there's enough people that really don't meet that criteria for you know, being a village, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that would come out of a bit different pot of vaccine, too. And mm-hmm. I think Dr. Jones last week said that everyone in the village, regardless of whether they were native or not, was eligible yep. to get the vaccine, which makes yeah. a lot of sense. I uh, agree, yeah. Um, so where are we at now in terms of what's your next plans for another clinic? Yeah, so um, there, tomorrow there is a meeting to kind of determine what where we're at in Kodiak, what is needed as far as the next batch of allocation goes, kind of where we are in the tiers. I'm sure, I mean, that's a state level decision. I'm sure the state will be looking at, have we vaccinated everybody 65 and older in Alaska? Because, you know, just because we have maybe completed that in Kodiak, um, I think it's important for us to kind of keep that neighborly view and know that we want we want the elders in the state to be protected. You know, if I'm 40s, 50s year old, yes, I want the vaccine, but at the same time, we I think just knowing it's important to protect our elders first, even if they're in a different community than us, and that really is what is going to be determined in the meeting tomorrow, and then kind of. I probably looking broadly at the state view where the next, you know, if we're, if everyone's vaccinated 65 and older, or at least given everyone the option to be vaccinated, you know, when are we, when are we ready to open up to tier two of phase one B? Um, and that's ages, I think, believe 50 and older and in those service public service jobs. So our teachers, and I think, I mean, it is really important. We do want to get those vaccines into our teachers as soon as that availability is is open. Dr. Jones, there was some indication last week that the pool right now, the tier is also includes healthcare workers and, and and home care providers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people sort of uh, don't consider themselves traditional home care providers, but they can sort of slide into the, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a lot of people that do that, and they don't traditionally think of themselves as being a, 
a home care provider, but they do provide those services. So there are ways to sort of expand the pool. Yeah. So um, Alaska, the DHSS has very specific kind of um, definitions and under phase one, eight, this is actually under phase one, eight tier three workers in healthcare settings provide essential services in a hospital clinic home or community-based setting that cannot be offered remotely or performed via telework. So, and then provide essential healthcare um, services yeah, in a healthcare setting that cannot be postponed because it would cause negative impact on that patient's health. So yeah, if you're providing, personal, you're a personal care attendant and you're working in a home with somebody who's you know, elderly and compromised, I think that definitely meets that criteria. So if you're in a, a traditional home environment and then with grandma and grandpa in the house, and, you know, mom and dad are there with the kids and they're providing health care services for grandma and grandpa, sort of, you know, um, everybody in the household would be eligible to get a vaccine, theoretically. That's a great question. I um, I am not sure. That's in a gray zone as far as. Okay. You know, I don't want to get, I don't wanna get you providers. in trouble. All right. All right. Let's just you know, just recently they came out with a new poll, the AP did, that said that, you know, 15 to 32 percent of Americans uh, won't get the vaccine. You know, 15 percent definitely said, I won't take it. Um, and another 15, 17 percent said maybe. So how do we deal with that when we're dealing with how moving down the tiers? Yeah. If, um, that's a great question. I think as time goes on and people see more and more information from the vaccine, a lot of people will realize that some of the fear, the conspiracy theories, the, the fears about, I mean, so many of, so much of the misinformation that was presented is easily debunked. It's, you know, if you just do a little bit of research and um, read a little bit more from the science you know, a scientific article about it, you'll know that an RNA vaccine cannot change your DNA fundamentally. And it's, and there, I mean, those are the, right now, I think the people that are saying they won't get it are the people that have heard some of these horrible things about the vaccine that just simply aren't true. And time will, science is always proved by time. Medicine is always shown by time. We might get it wrong at first, but as we're, you know, you keep using that scientific method, you want, I think people want the truth no matter who you are, no matter what, you know, your background is, you just want the truth. And as the truth is kind of revealed, people will become more and more, I think, convinced. For example, my mom is really conservative and she um, was really opposed to the vaccine at first and then watched a kind of video about a doctor, you know, doctors in Israel and, you know, people that she has been kind of going to as some of her sources for her information and she and they talked about how you know important the vaccine is how covid really is a deadly disease we don't see our hospitals overrun like this from flu and they kind of spoke to some of those those i don't know myths <laughs> about the vaccine and really offered their scientific evidence and now she and my dad are want to get it so i think as more and more scientific you know people kind of really find those scientific sources within their communities of faith or, you know, their um, political backgrounds, I think that people will realize the truth will speak for itself and people will know this is a really safe vaccine for a, a very deadly disease. 
but that takes time, you know. I, I remember when they were, the folks from the North Slope Bureau were talking about how the certain percentage of the people had been digging in their heels that they didn't want to get a vaccine, mm-hmm. and their 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 response was, "We need to educate them more. We need more exactly. education to go out." But education takes time when we're yeah. building up a stockpile of vaccine and deciding at what appropriate level it is that we have enough of the 65-year-old population vaccinated, now let's make it available. I mean, at some point in time, you have to say, we're going to close it out and we're going to open it up to other people because we're never going to get to 80% vaccination of 65-year-olds. Right, exactly. It does take time. I think right now the demand for the vaccine far exceeds the supply, which is a good thing. So it also takes time to make that vaccine. And I, I think it will work out for the most part, I mean, there's probably going to be exceptions and pockets of people who won't take it no matter what. But I think for the most part, as more vaccine becomes available, more people get it, more people see that, you know, the the side effects and the bad effects from the vaccine so far have been really negligible. I mean, you'll read stories saying, you know, so many deaths happened after people got the vaccine. But if you look at that exact population, uh, Dr. Osterholm has a great kind of um, gives a great report on this. He said, you know, within a week of people of all Americans age 65 and older, you're going to have about 750 deaths from heart attacks. And so if you give the vaccine to everybody, you're going to expect 750 deaths from a heart attack within a week. And it has nothing to do with the vaccine. He also told a story about his wife. She was about to give a pediatric patient a vaccine. And right before she administered the vaccines, the child had a seizure. And he was saying, you know, if she had given that vaccine five minutes earlier, you could not convince that family that that seizure, that that vaccine did not cause, um, the daughter was diagnosed with a seizure disorder after that. Had nothing to do with the vaccine. So what's really important is that when we are hearing these stories of you know, these elderly people, I think it was in um, Switzerland in a a nursing home, quite a few elderly people died after receiving the vaccines. They looked at it and were able to say most of them were, you know, they're older, they're medically fragile, they were terminal, they were probably going to die sometime within the next period anyways. Was it related to the vaccine? Perhaps if there were side effects of diarrhea, nausea, you know, they couldn't eat and they became more medically fragile. But was it actually caused by the vaccine? So far, the the science, the um, evidence is overwhelmingly no. And I think that will become evident, you know, more and more as these stories come out and then scientists are able to kind of explain and educate and, um, you know, we might not have as many people as we want and need to be vaccined as quick or vaccinated as quickly. But I think most of the people that were kind of opposing it now that I know personally are much more open to receiving it as time goes on. So now we're in a position where we know um, we have a fairly large portion of our population now who's gotten a second shot. I mm-hmm. mean, are you getting reports back in yet of uh, what what the effect of the second shot is? Yeah. So um, I asked Dr. Kohler this because I listened in on the, the KMXT lowdowns from the last couple of weeks. And he said for the first dose, there were a few mild reactions, no allergic reactions so far in Kodiak, knock on wood. Um, and then the second dose, more often people complained of side effects the next day for about 24 to 48 hours, um, mild 
complaints of headache, myalgia, which is kind of muscle aches, um, soreness at the injection site, um, some significant complaints of additional chills or low-grade fever and fatigue, and then you know people that have an underlying um, uh, rheumatological condition like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus tended to complain a little bit more of joint pain flare-ups. Um, and that's probably just, you know, the immune system, it, there is a process that your immune system is kind of mounting a response to this foreign invader that it sees. And those are, that is basically how you feel, you know, when your immune system is mounting a response to a virus, a cold, a, you know, strep throat, your body feels all those same symptoms from fighting the virus, or the bacteria in that case itself. So, so what about what about people who have already had COVID and are taking the vaccine? You know, I know there were some reports that even the first shot for some of those folks was pretty tough. I mean. Yeah, I haven't heard specifically um, that. I'm, I am about to get my second shot. I'm a little bit late on it, but, you know, the recommendation is just get that second shot as soon as you can. But as far as the first shot goes, I didn't have any, I didn't have any side effects at all. And it is, I think it's going to be hard to predict which people have more symptoms than others as far as that goes. But there is a theoretical, a theoretical kind of um, response that your, your immune system has already seen it. So it's going to activate more kind of readily and potentially cause more of those side effects. So is there any reason why you would, there was a study that just came out of Mount Sinai that kind of was talking about for people who have already had COVID to give someone one vaccine is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't yeah. need the second shot, but I'm thinking um, more is better. I, I, I don't know. You know, if you were going to, try and allocate the 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 vaccines because there wasn't enough maybe that would be a good theory but why would you go in that direction unless you had to right exactly i mean i think uh, yes the more times your body sees a particular virus or a protein the more it basically mounts a robust the more robust the response becomes um which is why we give boosters for like tetanus shots and so, but yeah, no, I think that's a great, I think that should be looked at because we really eventually want to vaccinate, you know, hopefully a lot of people in the world, the whole world. <laughs> and so it is going to take a long time and it would be really important to look at what is the minimum amount of vaccine we need to protect, you know, any given population. Um, I haven't read that study yet. I, I'm interested to take a look at it because maybe I would rather my mom be able to get a vaccine in Minnesota than for me to take a second dose of vaccine if I don't need it because she's 68 and she wants to see her grand. She has two new grandbabies. And so, like, I mean, I think if we just keep that in mind, it's okay. I would rather have somebody who needs a vaccine more to get that to have access to that shot than I, and you know, we're not going to be able to like give our shots from Alaska to Minnesota, but just in general, we want to really stay within those parameters as much as we can so that we are thinking about the most vulnerable populations first. Well, how is it that these vaccines work in that um, the Johnson and Johnson one, you only need one shot of, as opposed to these uh, MRNA ones where you need two why why does it work that way? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, they 
exactly you're exactly right they looked at in their study first of all the endpoint in the johnson and johnson kind of trial clinical phase three trial was looking at how well does this prevent um moderate covid infection so they weren't looking at just covid infections period they were looking at severity of the infection and they found that it was 66 percent um protective after 28 days and then 85% effective against severe disease. And really it's the severe disease that, I mean, yes, we have seen downstream side effects or like prolonged effects from even mild to moderate cases. So ideally we pr completely prevent the disease, but definitely it's a severe disease, you know, where you see deaths and hospitalizations and, and lo longer term bad effects. Um, so it's the way that, that it's, the way that your immune system sees that protein that's administered through the vaccine and the way that it kind of builds that response. And there's so, I mean, I was reading tons and tons of articles about how vaccines work on a molecular level, you know, biological level. It is extremely complex, but to kind of state it simply, it, it really depends on how that vaccine activates your immune system and the more robust activation it gets upon you know that first vaccine the less vaccine boosters you're going to need and and that is where things like adjuvants have come in you know mercury heavy metals mercury have come in like yes that vaccine might be more effective or you know you only need it one time but you're also activating your immune system that might cause some downstream effects later on in life and that's where you know the whole anti-vaccine campaign has kind of developed from so um, I'm not, I don't know specifics about the Johnson and Johnson, like what they, what they use. I just know that they use the adenovirus similar to AstraZeneca and have chopped up parts of the COVID-19 vaccine in there. But as it goes in to, they submitted it to the FDA for emergency youth authorization this week, and they're going to review it and then submit it to an independent committee and hopefully make a decision about um, whether or not it will be approved at the end of February. I think at that point, you know, more people will be really looking into, okay, what's in this? What do I need to tell my patients about? What do I need to, you know, say as far as um, comparing it to the other vaccines as far as side effects goes and all the rest of it? Well, how concerned are you that, you know, the vaccines, um, the vaccines are starting to show that they don't necessarily work on the variants? You know, are, are we are we at risk at, of not being able to keep up with the speed with which this thing seems to mutate? I think, you know, from all of the virologists, immunologists, kind of the scientists that I've read, there is a big concern that this is going to be very much like the flu, the annual flu, where we, you know, try to predict the 13 or so most likely strains to be causing problems in that particular year. And it might need an annual kind of shot that tries to target the most likely variants from the COVID, um, whatever mutations have developed over time. Uh, it's hard to say yet. It's very concerning. For one, it's very concerning. And the way we can prevent mutants from arising is continuing to follow the safety measures and prevent the more people we can prevent from getting it in the first place, the fewer mutations we're going to have. 
until, you know, we can get everyone vaccinated for the strains that are out there and hopefully prevent um, further strains from developing. But it is very concerning. And I think the good news is, is that we do have the technology now to target some of those strains. But again, that means, yeah, we can make more vaccines for it, but that means more shots for people, more vaccinations for people. And, and I think that's where it starts to get tricky as far as, you know, convincing people to get vaccinated every year. Yeah, well, and there's also this dual purpose of a vaccine that, you know, one, you're trying to prevent, prevent the person you're giving it to, and then you're also trying to prevent people from being able to give it to other people. And some of these vaccines are more effective at protecting the person than protecting the person who might get it, you know, anyway, even though they've been vaccinated, from giving it to somebody else. Um, that's problematic, too, is, you know, it, as this thing starts to mutate, is are our testing protocols keeping up with the mutations? I mean, the you you folks have been using the Abbott test uh, and the regular the regular test for a long time. And as I understand it, when we first started testing this, there, there wasn't any widespread testing in Alaska for variants. We just knew somebody was positive for COVID. But at some point in time, are, is the test not even going to be able to show that it's COVID because it's mutated? Yeah, that's a good question. So far, the tests um, do detect, you know, SARS-CoV-2, any variant. And that is... I mean, I think expected to be the case. However, could there be a mutant that develops that's so strangely different that it's not even detected by the test anymore? Um, that's a that's probably a possibility. I don't know the likelihood. I don't have the kind of really deep virology science to kind of say, you know, weigh in on how likely that is or how that would work. Um, but I know Dr. Anzink did say recently that we're trying to send more and more of, so when our tests get sent to the state lab um, or out, send out, we are trying to type, you know, genotype a lot more of those um, tests to kind of see what we're, what we're seeing in Alaska. You know, when we do have a surge somewhere, it is hard to know, is that surge because we had this more um, contagious variant and we just don't know about it? And we, we won't know that unless we're doing the genotyping. Right. Well, the cases in Alaska are down so low now, we almost feel like, you know, we could go back to normal. Um, mm -hmm. But then these fast spreaders sort of creep into the community somehow and yeah. it could get out of control again pretty quickly. That's exactly right. We're not out of the woods. We're not out of the woods at all. We could have a surge, in, uh, you know, resurgence, a surge, and it could be higher than anything we've seen yet. I mean, if you look at the pattern in March, we had that surge and we brought flatten the curve and we kind of felt like we were out of the woods. July, the surge came back with what we thought then was a vengeance and um, eventually flattened that curve. And then, you know, November, December, the holidays is when we just saw it go off the charts. There is a potential. We have enough people that haven't been vaccinated, haven't been infected to have a surge that far kind of overshadows the surges we've had so far. And, you know, a lot of people are concerned with the Super Bowl parties. People are really, you know, being so excited there's a vaccine now that we can kind of let our guard down now. Um, there is a, Dr. Osterholm is, he's been right all along and he is concerned that we're going to have a surge that is the worst that we've seen yet. 
And I think, and he says, you know, people send me hate mail. They say, why are you always so negative? The, the thing is, is it's so much more important to know that so that we can do something about it and really prevent that the morbidity, mortality in our communities. It's not easy to hear. It's not good news. We don't want to hear that right now. But the, the thing is, is that the virus doesn't care what we want to hear. The virus is going to do what it's going to do. And we have enough Tinder. We have enough, you know, people that haven't been infected yet that we could have a surge that is way bigger. I mean, if we have 10% people that have been either vaccinated or infected, we've got 90% of people that are still, you know, tender for the forest fire of the, of the virus to catch them, to catch on. So we still have to be, our only game right now, our only real true like guaranteed game is continuing to prevent it. The vaccine is a game changer, but it's not, we don't have enough of it yet. We don't have enough people vaccinated yet. And now that these variants are out, exactly, we have to be more cautious than ever. I feel like I say that every time. <laughs> yeah. Well, but what happens to the people that have already had two and they waited their two or three weeks afterwards for full immunity to kick in, you know? Um, do they have to continue to maintain the same protocols as others? I mean, can you go visit grandma now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Dr. Osterholm, and I, I, he really gets kind of his information from virologists, epidemiologists, says, yes, you should be able to go visit your family after you're vaccinated and waited two weeks to t for that to take effect. But when you're traveling and you're around anybody else, double, you know, wear that double mask, continue hand washing, continue distancing as much as you can. If you can drive, drive, because... Every time you put yourself in someone else's airspace, there is a chance that there's a mutant variant in that airspace that might affect, you know, that you might not have full immunity to. So still take those precautions, especially until we have reached a really good amount of herd immunity. And like Dr. Jones said that, you know, what's good herd immunity, 60, 70, 80 percent, it might be 90 percent if we have a lot of variants out there. So it really is still kind of playing the same game of defense. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about the creepy crawler that went through Australia through the door of the quarantine hotel, but we'll, we'll leave that to next week, maybe. Uh, yeah. Double mask. That is the now the recommendation of the mm -hmm. CDC, that we double mask ourselves. First we went from, mm -hmm. no, we don't need one, to now we, 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 you need a, a super one, and now the cloth masks are okay. They give you some protection. And now uh, double mask and loop it behind your ears and wear it all the time. Yeah. I mean, if you just think of it from a filtration perspective, the more filtering you have, the less likely the virus is going to get through. And everybody in Honduras on the plane was double masking and wearing the plastic shields. And I think um, it it's because they're, you know, they have shown it is it does filter more potential droplets and particles. So double yeah. masking and a face shield. Mm -hmm. And they, yep. they still have a huge outbreak in Honduras though. Yeah. And I think that's probably more related to, you know, they had the huge hurricane. There's a ton of people that are displaced living in tents along the side of the roads. I think, um, unfortunately they've had within the country, a lot of kind of setbacks, but everybody that was traveling to there from the United States or, you know, able to get on a plane and travel, um, they were double masking, wearing a face shield. They're taking it seriously. Right. Again, so the 
plans for your your clinic for the next big open vaccination clinic? When is that supposed to happen? Great question. Tomorrow, um, we will be meeting with the Kodiak, um, all the clinics in Kodiak and the Emergency Operations Center to determine when our next batch of vaccines will be. Um, we will post, I think we're still posting on our website. Um, we will try to keep everybody posted what the next details are. Unfortunately, I, we don't know yet. And and that's the case in every single state. When I was in Minnesota, my mom had no idea how she could get a vaccine and she's 68. So um, we will try to keep you in the loop as we know, but also continue to have patience because this whole thing, you know, from the federal to the state to the local level is still kind of unfolding. And so we, we only know a little bit at a time. So for the folks out there who want to get one and they're not in a tier that's open right now, though, you're, mm-hmm. you're maintaining lists down at the clinic. So people yes. can just call and say, put me on a list and when it's available, call me. So if even if you're not in that tier that's open, there may be a possibility like over the weekend that they could come in and get vaccinated. But yes, how many of true. those lists exist? I mean, how many do you have a list that goes for every tier? And then if you're in one B right now and you, you have openings, you call the people on the next tier down. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure because I haven't been in clinic. Um, yeah. I can get that information for the next time, but I believe that is how it is working. We are trying to make sure we have the list of um, each tier and, you know, who meets criteria and then, or yeah, exactly. Who's the highest risk <laughs> is yeah. how we're trying to give them. Well, thanks for being with me. Dr. Smith didn't pop up, but we had a great conversation. Thanks for uh, coming along. Nice to see your face again. Oh, thank you so much. This is wonderful. All right. Welcome back to Town. I'm glad uh, everything turned out for you okay. And we will talk to you all again next Wednesday. Have a great week. All right.